You know, if you just remember the words of that song, I won't even have to preach this morning. That's Psalm 62. That's wonderful. Whoever picked that. Diane, did you pick that? Wonderful, wonderful hymn. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back among the saints at Desert Springs Presbyterian Church. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please keep them open to... Uh, Revelation chapter 4, we're going to be looking at those two chapters this morning. Jerry read that wonderful text this morning, so I'm not going to read it again now, but keep your fingers there and we will, we will refer to that. So before we study God's Word together this morning, please pray with me asking for God's help in understanding this very, very important text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you speak uh, in this New Testament book of the suffering, struggling church, beleaguered, hard-pressed, sometimes compromised, often persevering through many trials, and yet you speak to show these early churches yourself and to give encouragement and comfort and strength that like you, the church militant might conquer and sit with you on your throne. We pray that as we read and study your word together, that you would speak and do the same great work among us, among this local church, gathered here this morning, for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, as we begin, let me just say a few words about the book of Revelation to put these, I think, put these two chapters in their proper context. Turn back to chapter 1, if you would, and look at verse 1 says there, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, this is, this is a very, very revealing verse. It's, it's chock full of indicators which help us understand what this sometimes confusing book is all about. For example, we see here that this revelation from God is for the benefit of the church. You see, that's the reference there to servants. It's talking about the church there. We see that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the central figure of this book. And it's a revelation given by God. It's given not directly to us, to the church, but through a vision given to the Apostle John. Now, that's helpful information, isn't it? That moves the curtain back just a little bit. But there's even more here which fleshes all that out, gives us a better idea of just what sort of book John was writing. And he mentions three things in these opening verses that help clarify that. First, in this opening verse, he tells us that what he's writing is a revelation. Now, revelation in Greek is the word apocalypse, and it's the very first word of the book. In fact, there's no definite article in the text. So the book actually begins, Revelation of Jesus Christ. And by revelation, it's meant that in this book, God is disclosing to the church, through John, to us, something that we would not otherwise know or be able to discover. But the word apocalypse also indicates a particular type of disclosure. It's a particular form of prophetic writing that we find with many of the Old Testament prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, 
Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. Apocalyptic writing is marked by reports of visions, of the transporting of the seer or writer to heaven in his visions, of the mediation of the revelation to the prophet by angelic beings and by highly symbolic presentations of the truth being revealed. And so, and this is important. What this apocalyptic form of writing was intended to provide was a transcendent perspective on the world and upon human life in the world. You see, the seer is taken out of the world to learn the secrets of God's purposes as they're known in heaven and to see the world from the heavenly perspective as God sees the world. So that's the first thing to be said about the book of Revelation. It's an apocalypse. It's a revelation. It's a disclosure of a particular type made in a particular form. Second, Revelation, as John says a little bit later in chapter 1, verse 3, is a prophecy. And by prophecy is meant certainly the disclosure of the future, as verse 1 says. It says this future, this vision is about the things that must soon take place. But prophecy is much more than that. Prophecy is not only the, uh, the prediction of the future. It's also the authoritative proclamation or declaration of the meaning of the present and of the obligations of God's people in the present. In fact, the prophets of the Old Testament were preachers even more than they were predictors of the future. John stands as a successor to the Old Testament prophets who were always addressing the immediate situation of their contemporaries, as well as speaking of things to come. They did both, and so does John here in this book. And then third, John tells us that Revelation is a letter. We see in chapter 1, verse 4, the formal beginning of the book is in the form of a circular letter. It's from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, a form very familiar to readers of the New Testament from the letters of the Apostle Paul. All of his letters begin the same way. There's a greeting here in the first four verses of chapter 1. Then there's the body of the letter, verse 5, all the way through chapter 22, verse 20. And then there's that short closing or farewell, chapter 22, verse 21. And that is significant for us here. That fact that Revelation is a letter indicates unmistakably that it addresses the situation of John's immediate contemporaries. That it's a message for these seven churches in Asia. It's for them and to them. It's not a code book to be deciphered by some future generation of Christians. You know, a letter is meant to be read. It's meant to be understood. It has a message that John expected those who heard the letter read to, to understand and to take to heart and to live accordingly. You know, what do you expect to find 
when you read one of Paul's letters to the Gentiles? Well, you expect to find an account of what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ, his Son. What promises of salvation are yet to be fulfilled? And how we who believe in Jesus are to live in the meantime. And all of that is found in Revelation as well. In fact, those are the great subjects of the book. Revelation is all theology. It's the teaching about God and salvation. It's the teaching about the Christian life. And we misunderstand the book entirely if we take it to be some kind of secret code, an esoteric forecast of future events, able to be understood only by those few capable of breaking the code and unlocking its secrets. Now certainly, Revelation does contain a forecast of future events at the end of time, but only in very general form. It does talk about the second coming, talks about the last judgment, heaven and hell, very much as Jesus did, and Paul did, and Peter did. It uses a different form of words. It describes events in a different literary style, but the message is the same as we find elsewhere in Scripture. Now, you put all that together, and what do you have? What we have in Revelation is the disclosure of an alternative reality and an exhortation to John's Christian friends to live their lives in keeping with that reality. What Revelation is designed to do is to give them and us an alternative vision of the world in which we live. You see, to John's contemporaries and to us, the world appears to be one thing. And John tells us it is, in fact, something quite different from what it appears to be. But here's the thing. Only faith can see that alternative reality. You see, the world looks very different from heaven. Things take on a very different meaning when seen from a heavenly, a divine, a transcendent, eternal perspective. And what John is doing here, what he exhorts us in this wonderful book, is by faith to have this eternal, transcendent perspective as we live out our days here on earth. So with that eternal perspective in view, let's just take a quick look at these two chapters that Jerry read this morning. The book of Revelation, after a brief introductory chapter, it opens with specific letters of the risen Christ to seven churches located in Asia Minor. Now we read these letters to the churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We read about them in chapters 2 and 3. They're very, very revealing letters. You've probably heard many sermons on letters to those churches 
They offer a penetrating, sometimes uncomfortable examination of, of life in these seven representative congregations. You see, these were local congregations. Some of them are struggling with false teaching. For some, their first love for Christ had grown cold. Still others were, were dealing with moral failure. Some were dealing with worldliness or with materialism. Some were facing persecution, acute suffering. But in each situation, as we saw toward the end of each letter, they were called upon by Christ to do what? To conquer and to overcome. Look at the end of chapter 3, verse 21. You'll see precisely that. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. You see, that's Jesus' call to us. Conquer. Persevere. Don't get sidetracked. Press on. Keep on keeping on. Don't be overcome. Cross the finish line. Win the prize. And we hear that instruction. We hear that exhortation from our Lord. And we survey our burdens, our hurts, our wounds, our trials. We look at the sin that still indwells our hearts. And we see the opposition of the world to the Christian gospel that we proclaim. We see a hostile, immoral culture around us and a fickle, rebellious heart within us, and the command to conquer and overcome doesn't seem quite so easy, does it? Revelations chapter 4 and 5 show us the throne in heaven and the one who is seated upon it. You see, in these two chapters we actually step into the command and control center of the universe. And we see the Lord who reigns over all. And now, and now suddenly, the sin, the sorrow, the hurts, and the hostility that we endure that seemed a moment ago so all-encompassing, all of a sudden they've been put into a larger context. And we learn that the true measure of whether we overcome is not the strength of our own arm. It's not the wisdom of our own judgment. It's not the conviction of our own belief after all. But the power of the infinite, eternal, unchanging, sovereign God. What we're being told here in these two chapters in the dramatic imagery of apocalyptic literature, is that there is a reality that one does not see on earth. And in the center of that reality is the divine throne, symbolizing the divine sovereignty, the divine rule, the divine judgment, the divine will. Now we note that this throne, it's fully acknowledged in heaven but it's not yet acknowledged fully on earth. In fact, many human beings utterly are unaware of its existence. 
But what you see in heaven, John tells us here in these two chapters, is the true reality that must eventually be acknowledged on earth as well. See, heaven is the sphere of ultimate reality, no matter the pretensions of earthly powers. The divine purpose will prevail on earth. And what's happening on earth, especially that which seems to be happening to the detriment of Christians, to the detriment of the kingdom of God, that too is the outworking of God's eternal and ultimate purpose for mankind, for the world, for his church. You see, what John's vision here means is that when you and I, when Christians find themselves in danger, they can be absolutely confident that their plight is so far from being a defeat for God's plan, it is itself the divine plan. The will of the throne of God, the considered decision of the heavenly council. However little we can understand the purposes of God, however impossible it is for us to see how our troubles contribute to this inexorable progress of the divine plan for the world and the kingdom of God, the majesty in heaven is in absolute control over all that happens in the world. And with the assistance of his holy angels, he's working his purposes out. I'd like for you to think of it this way. You know, you've all seen war movies, you've seen documentaries devoted especially to the, to the history of the Second World War. Well, if you've seen those, you've often seen large rooms that are lined with maps in the middle of which is this giant table, which itself is usually a map. And surrounding that table are men and women in uniform. They're moving little flags or miniature tanks or planes or ships or other symbols that represent various military formations. It's called a situation room. It's called a command and control center. And it's a particular battlefield that's represented on the great map that's in the middle of the room. And the progress of the battle is charted by the movement of the various symbols and pieces on that map. And when a symbol of some kind is, is moved from one place to another, it means either that a change has occurred on the battlefield and the map is being adjusted to reflect the new reality, or that an order has been given to a particular unit or formation to move to the place indicated on the map. Well, it's something like that that John shows us here. In these two chapters, see, what John was given to see was the control room. It was the operations center. It was the situation room, if you will, of Supreme Headquarters. And from that room, the entire war being waged on earth between the forces of light and those of darkness between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the devil, it's not only being charted, but it's being controlled movement by movement by movement by movement. 
You see, what's decided in heaven will have an exact counterpart on earth. And dear ones, events will unfold in human history precisely as they have been ordered to unfold from the control room in heaven. So let's just go with John, shall we, into the throne room, the situation room, the command and control center, and look where he points us, or rather where the angelic voice points John. In chapter 4, John sees, and we see a revelation of the glory of God the Creator. And then in chapter 5, which parallels chapter 4, we see a slightly different but overlapping theme, this time the glory of Christ the Redeemer. So let's look at chapter 4, the glory of God the Creator. John begins his account of this vision in verse 2 of chapter 4. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now we could stop right there, and we could meditate for the rest of our time on that phrase and not exhaust its importance. There is a throne in heaven, and it's not empty. It's occupied. And don't we need to hang on to the, that truth? <laughs> you know, in these crazy days of all this political turmoil that's going on, the moral decay that we see in our culture, the chaos of, of global jihad, Behold a throne, and one seated on it. You see, whatever the pundits say and wish, and whatever our secret fears may insinuate, God has not abdicated his throne. There is a throne. There's one seated on it. And that throne is a symbol of an absolute sovereignty. And by the way, that, this throne is mentioned 17 times in these two chapters. You know, we need to consider that this morning. The Christian churches of that time, they were small. They were threatened. You know, the power of Rome seemed invincible. They witnessed the Roman propaganda every day of their lives, just as we witness the American propaganda at every turn, every day, every moment. And what those congregations congregations needed most to know, and what we need most to know, was that there was a far greater throne than Rome's, than America's, and it was occupied with our king. And I love John's description of the one who's seated on the throne, don't you? Jerry read verse 3, he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. I don't have a clue of what Carnelian is. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like a diamond, I think Jerry read, emerald. And I think we need to be careful not to overread that, uh, not to find hidden meaning in each precious stone. John is simply trying to find some way to put into words something of the radiance, the beauty, the majesty, and the glory shining directly from the one seated on the throne. And the fact of the matter is, is that words fail John here. He doesn't have the vocabulary to tell us what he sees. All he can say 
is that the one on the throne is like gemstones. He's like a diamond turning in the sun, dazzling in his beauty. That's the best he can do. But we get the idea. And around the throne, notice in verse 4, there are 24 elders. Now, there's been some debate as to the identity of these 24 elders. In my view, they represent the whole people of God, one church across both the Old and the New Testaments, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus. And like at Mount Sinai, as Israel gathered around the mountain over in Exodus 19, there are peals of thunder, flashes of lightning that emanate here from God's throne. But whereas at Sinai, if you remember, no one was permitted to draw near the mountain. Here the people of God are right up close. They're surrounding the throne. That is a, a beautiful thing. You know, if you're a child of God, however weak, however unworthy you may feel yourself to be, you have a ringside seat right close to God. Notice also that before the throne there are seven burning torches of fire. The number seven is significant in the, in the New Testament. It's particularly significant in the book of Revelation. It represents fullness, represents completeness. And here John tells us that these torches are the seven spirits of God. And this is his way of speaking of the fullness of God's Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit. There are seven representative churches to which the book of Revelation is written. So here is the Holy Spirit, perfectly sufficient for the needs of the whole church. The sevenfold Spirit for the seven churches, so that in our God there is no lack for His people. Then there's something here before the throne. Look at that. Do you see that? Something John says is like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, the sea in Jewish thought was emblematic of chaos, emblematic of evil. But here it's utterly calm. Still, it's at rest before the throne of God. Now, there remains evil in the world to be sure. But God reigns in sovereign majesty over all of it. The sea is calm at his feet. Chaos comes to heal at his decree. Here is a safe harbor for us amidst the apparent uncertainties of life. You know, last I know there are people in this congregation that are sick. Claire Miller's in, in the hospital. Desert or uh, Rencon Mountain had three deaths last week. And one of the widows commented she felt like she'd been hit by a ton of bricks. It was unexpected. Dear ones, the Lord our God reigns. Even over the raging waves of chaos that surge at times around us, the Lord is on his throne. And then there are these Four strange living creatures in verses 6 and 7. 
They're covered in eyes. I think that suggests to me eternal vigilance. One of them has the face of a lion, the second of an ox, the third of a man, and the fourth of an eagle. They have six wings, very similar to the angelic seraphim that Isaiah saw in, in chapter 6. And they sing the praises of God before His throne. Now, the faces of these different creatures mirror Ezekiel's description of the angelic cherubim that he saw in his vision of the heavenly throne and its glories. So it appears that these four figures represent maybe a more exalted order of angels. Now think of the lion as the noblest of all creatures, the ox perhaps as the strongest, man as the wisest, the flying eagle as the swiftest of all creatures. Here man is among the creatures before God, who is the creator of all things. So the image here seems to be that all the powers of nature are available for the use of God in ruling His world. You know, these four creatures lead in the worship of God that's being offered in heaven. So the picture here is that all of nature, all of creation is bowing before Him as well. Now, it may be difficult to decipher each of those images separately. People disagree on that. But here's the thing. You take all of them together, the 24 elders, the seven spirits, the sea of glass, the four living creatures, all of them are intended to do one thing, and that is to enhance the glory of this throne. Everything here concerns this throne and the one that's seated on it. Look at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. In other, in other words, everything in the world, absolutely everything, even evil spirits, evil men are God's creatures. And they are subject to his sovereign rule. He is in control. That's the point. And then in chapter 5, our attention turns from creation to redemption. From the Father to the Son. From the glory of God the Creator to the glory of God the Redeemer. And it's interesting for us to note here, I think, there is nothing in chapter 4... That could not have been written by a non-Christian Jew. But here in chapter 5, the vision changes. The vision becomes, it becomes specifically, obviously, and emphatically Christian. Well, the scene opens this time with a crisis. It's all there in verses 1 through 4. Look at that. John sees a scroll in the hands of God covered in writing. But there's a problem. It's sealed shut. An angel asks for someone worthy to open the scroll, break its seals, and there is no one, not in heaven or earth or under the earth. No one can open the scroll, and John loses it. He starts to weep loudly. Why does he do that? Well, John knows the meaning of the scroll. It's the script for the great drama of human history. It's God's master plan 
for the salvation of sinners and the overflow of evil. It's the scroll of the divine decree. But you see, if the script is never read, the drama can't proceed. If the master plan is not revealed, God's purposes surely must fail. Chaos wins. Evil wins. Satan wins. And so John is devastated because it looks like there will be no plot line for history, no direction for our lives. And then one of the elders comes to John and does what good elders should always do. He comforts John by pointing him to the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered so that, so that he can open the scroll. And I think you recognize the imagery here. By the way, there is so much imagery from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Well, here's a couple of more. Judah's lion comes from Genesis 49.9. The root of David from Isaiah chapter 11. And both of those are commonly understood to be prophecies of the coming Messiah. They emphasize his strength his royal dignity. He, he will be great David's or King David's greater heir. And so here's John. He turns with, I think, understandable excitement to see this triumphant messianic conqueror. And look at what he sees. Look at verse 6. John sees that the lion is actually a lamb. See, that's what the Jews didn't grasp. When Jesus was among them, and when of his own free will he went to the cross. They had a wrong view of the Messiah. It was the Messiah's primary ministry and calling to offer himself a sacrifice for the sins of his people. The lion is actually a slain lamb. And you see, the Jews missed all that. The term lamb always carries with it the implied reference to a sacrificial death. So the lion, the king who is going to open the scrolls, is the very one who gave his life to redeem his people. Here's the point. There is no other way to accomplish the divine purpose for the world than through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no other way. You know, history is a complete enigma. In other words, apart from the redemptive plan of God in Jesus Christ, apart from that, history makes absolutely no sense. Now, the horn mentioned here, I think, is a, it's a typical symbol of strength in the Bible. So seven horns would be the symbol for perfect power or um, omnipotence. Seven eyes are a symbol of perfect knowledge or omniscience. You remember Paul's uh, identification of Jesus over in 1 Corinthians 1, he says Jesus is the power of God. He's also the wisdom of God. That's what John sees here in the slain lamb. Talks about the seven spirits here. That's John's way of speaking of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the New Testament makes clear that it's at the Lord's, Lord's behest that the Holy Spirit works in the world. He's the Savior's gift to the world and to his church and does Christ's work in the world. You know, as Peter reminds us in his Pentecost sermon, 
It was because of the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection that the Spirit was given to the world. And I want you to notice here where the Lamb is standing. You know, my translation, the ESV, that that Jerry read, says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Another, perhaps a better translation, is in the midst of the throne. You see, that's where Jesus himself says he is at the end of chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 21 again. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Where? On his throne, on the same throne, occupying the same space, we might say, as the creator God of chapter 4 is the Lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 7. One of my favorite verses. What a wonderful verse. What simpler or more beautiful way could be found of making the point that history is under God's control and that the Father has appointed His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring it to its proper conclusion, than for the Lamb to receive this scroll from the hand of God the Father, sitting upon the heavenly throne. It's a a clear picture, it's a beautiful picture of direct authority over the world and its history being transferred from the Father to the Son. And then what happens? When heaven saw the scroll being handed from father to son, it breaks out in this great hymn of praise. It's sort of like a rock thrown into a calm pond. There's this ripple effect. Actually, it's not a ripple. It's more like a tsunami. This erupting of praise that sweeps outward from the center in these concentric circles. See, Jesus takes the scroll. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down in worship. It says here they offer up incense, a symbol of the church in prayer. And they sing an amazing hymn of praise, a new song. You see that in verses 9 and 10. And then this tidal wave pushes on. It expands to its widest possible reach. Every single creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea join in. Verse 13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the living creatures shout, Amen. The elders fall down and they worship. What a scene. What a destiny awaits the people of God. And what has been the great theme of their hymn this time in chapter 5? It's not creation. That was chapter 4. What is it this time? It's redemption, isn't it? Jesus has saved sinners from all over the world by his blood. And so he is worthy to be adored. Dear ones, the book of Revelation is from first to last. It's a calling. It's a message addressed to God's people. It's addressed to the church. It's addressed to you and me. It's a call to faith. It's a call to the, to the full exercise of that faith in the world in which we live and in the time in which we live. 
you know, I think I put on your outline. You know, what's the great difficulty in being a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? What is the thing that makes being a faithful Christian the most difficult? Well, some might say it's the hard work of obedience. You know, God, He requires of us obedience to many commandments that are difficult to obey. It's hard to be pure. It's hard to be loving. It's hard to be humble. It's very hard to put the interests of others above our own. You know, God asks us to deny desires that are very natural to us. They're very powerful within us. But hard as obedience is, it isn't the real difficulty of the Christian life. You know, I think the difficulty of obedience would disappear to a great degree if it weren't for another still greater difficulty. And that difficulty is that Christians have to live by faith. Now think about that. You know, what a huge difference it makes to be able to see the things we are ordinarily required to believe. Now, just look at John. In chapter 1, he saw the Lord Christ in his glory. It says he was standing among the seven lampstands, and the sight shattered him. It overwhelmed him. And here in these two chapters, he sees the Lord seated on the throne of heaven in all his glory, his majesty, his sovereignty, and he's blown away. You know, the same thing happened to Isaiah, happened to Paul, happened to Daniel. Now, we believe that the glory of God is overwhelming. We believe that. But that's hardly the same thing as actually being overwhelmed by that glory. You know, John, I don't know this, I suspect he never thought about the world or his life in this world the same way again after having seen the Lord with the majesty of God upon him as seen in this vision of Jesus in these two chapters. See, John was given by the Holy Spirit to see things, marvelous things, that you and I just have to believe. And I suspect that if he was ever again attempted, or he has ever attempted to exaggerate the vaunted power and glory of Rome, he never made that same mistake again. Every time he heard someone speak of Rome's sovereign power, he would just chuckle to himself. And he would remember what he saw and what happened to him when he saw Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, exalted in heaven, seated on the throne with his father. You know, whenever he witnessed evil seeming to triumph in this world, whenever he saw the church suffering for her faith, he would catch himself, and he would remember what he saw and what he recorded in these two chapters. But you see, of course, you and I don't have John's experience or Paul's. Remember, he was taken up in a vision to heaven. He was given to see things so uh, surpassingly wonderful that he wasn't even allowed to try to describe them to others. We haven't had Isaiah's experience of seeing the Lord high and lifted up. We've never heard the voice that sounds like rushing waters. We've not enjoyed these high privileges like John, Paul, and Isaiah. What we can see, what we have seen, 
is often quite different from that. We see the suffering of the church. We see believers struggling to believe that the gospel really works. That God's power can be experienced in our lives when we pray. That his promises are all yea and amen. You see, we see a world that lives in utter indifference to its maker. It's great men often denying outright that the world even has a maker. We see more unbelief than faith. We see more wickedness than goodness. That's what we see every day of our lives. Now we know that what John describes to us in this book is true. We know that Christ is among the lampstands. We know that he's on the throne in heaven. We know that that's the actual reality of things. But I, I, I say to you, my experience is we have to hold very tight to that reality because unable to see it, forced every day to see a world that doesn't immediately appear to be as John describes it here, that reality is always almost near to slipping from our grasp. You know, the great father, church father Tertullian once said, among the reefs and inlets of life, the soul is safe only if faith, her sails filled by the Spirit of God, navigates the way. And that's so true. But it's no easy thing to keep faith's hand upon the wheel of our lives. And you see, that's why these chapters... That's why the book of Revelation is so important for us who must live by faith and not by sight. You see, John has given us a record of what he saw so that we who cannot see can be the more sure of what is real. You know, there's a lot of good reasons to be convinced of our Christian faith, the teachings of the Bible. You know, the longer I live... Uh, the longer I experience this world, the more I study the Bible and compare its teachings to my observance of human life, the more sure I become of the truth of all of it. But I accept that believing what I cannot see remains the hardest work in all the world. And it's this difficulty, you see, that explains the vision John was given and the report of which he has recorded for us in this wonderful book. It's to encourage us who must believe and who cannot see that at least a few good men were given to see and then told to tell us what they saw. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you that Jesus is our glorious and merciful Redeemer. We bless you that you've lifted the veil a bit enabled us this morning to see what John saw that day, that we would see Christ still bearing the marks of his love for us. Forgive us for those moments when our faith in this truth waxes and wanes because of tomorrow's apparent uncertainties. Sometimes we live as if you have abdicated your throne in heaven, and so we bow before you in repentance. We renew our submission to King Jesus even this day. Help us today to join in with the hosts of heaven and sing a new song today. Worship Him. Help us to bend the knee to trust Him, not ourselves, 
not the world, not the politicians, not the pundits, not the polls, not our best guesses, but to trust him alone. Help us to respond with more than words, but with our lives freshly surrendered to his glory and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.